this morning reading is taken from the Matthew chapter 7, 24 to 29, on page 972 or on the screen. It's about parable of the wise and foolish builders. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and put them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the stream rose, and the wind blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But Everyone who hears this word of mine and does not put into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the stream rose, and the wind blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teacher of the law. This is the words of the Lord. I'm very grateful to Eddie for the invitation to be here this morning and to make a contribution to this series that you're doing under this title or heading of Living um, in Love and Faith, a title you'll be aware that is um, out there in the Church of England as a whole to describe um, a process um, of discussion. And uh, so whether you're watching this online um, or whether you're here, let's bow our heads and pray that as we ponder these few verses we just heard read and the implications of them for this discussion, that we will know God's voice and guidance Father, we thank you for the words that Jesus spoke all those years ago. And we thank you that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recorded them for us. And we dare to pray now that that same Holy Spirit would enable us to hear these words afresh and to be able to ponder under your good hand what they might mean in this area of gender, identity, and sexuality. For Jesus' sake. Amen. It it sometimes seems like the Church of England has been talking um, about sex forever. And actually that's not entirely true. Because over the centuries there have been all kinds of different things that the Church of England has needed to focus on uh, and wrestled with um, internally. But it is true to say that at the moment, um, it is very much the focus of concern um, and conversation. And the reason for that, I think, can be explained um, in this little image on the screen, the image of a tug-of-war, because it seems to me that every now and then in the life of the Church of England, there has been a real tussle between, on the one side, what you might call liberalism, and on the other side, what you might call orthodoxy or conservatism, all with small letters. We're not talking about political parties um, or anything like that. Uh, And for the last 20, 30, 40 years, 
there has been a tension, a tussle, between those who hold on to what you might call a traditional and orthodox position on issues of gender and identity and sexuality and those who want to take a more liberal so-called view. What I think it is worth noting about the current situation that is different to the situation in the past is this. First of all, that the prevailing culture of today is very different to what it was 25 years ago um, or 50 years ago. Um, I could never have imagined 50 years ago um, that I would hear today the things that I hear being said um, or see today the things that I see happening. And I'm sure you'd agree with me. There has been enormous change in our lifetime. The second thing that's different about today is that within the Church of England, things are happening. I call them facts on the ground. Things are happening that, as it were, change the debate. In one sense, they actually don't change the debate because the debate um, has never got to that point. But they are preempting the debate and making it very difficult for the debate to do anything other than to become increasingly liberal. And when you look at sometimes what bishops are saying, sometimes what churches are doing, sometimes what's happening in cathedrals and other local churches, um, you end up thinking it almost feels as though the whole church has moved on, even though we've never made a decision that that's the right or biblical thing to do. And so it's in that context that we've got this little passage in front of us um, today. Uh, And despite its brevity, it's a massively significant passage. And what I want to do this morning is to offer you, first of all, just a couple of brief comments about the passage itself. And then building on those comments, I want to say something about how I believe so many folk are attempting to build their understanding of issues of gender, identity, and sexuality on sand rather than rock. And I want to illustrate for you what that looks like um, within church debate. And then secondly, I want to make one or two comments about building on the rock. So firstly, let me just offer you a couple of comments about these verses in Matthew chapter 7. And the first thing to say is this, and it sounds kind of obvious, the focus of these words are the teachings of Jesus and Scripture. Now, it's unfair to differentiate between the teachings of Jesus and the rest of Scripture because Jesus was both versed in and endorsing of the Scriptures that he knew. Of course, at the time, he only had the Old Testament, whereas we now have the Old Testament and the New Testament. But you can't differentiate when Jesus says here that the challenge is to build on his word. You can't say, oh, that only meant Jesus' words. Jesus didn't include the Old Testament there. Jesus didn't mean prophetically the New Testament that was yet to be written. Because scholars have always said, when Jesus said these words, what is meant by that is the whole of Scripture. You can't discount Paul and the other New Testament writers simply because they hadn't appeared when Jesus said this. Because the church has always understood these words to speak about scripture as a whole. So that's the first thing, just to make clear, that we're not here only talking about the words of Jesus. We'll come back to that perhaps a little bit later. The second thing to say is this. There is a very clear challenge in these words. And the challenge is between either obedience or disobedience. 
Do you remember the Apostle John later writes this? If we say we have fellowship with him but walk in darkness, we don't. And that's a sideways reference to the business of obedience and disobedience. Or James, if you remember, he writes, faith is not just words but works. And by that he does not mean you can earn your way with God. What he does mean is that being a disciple of Jesus is not just about saying the right things or hearing the right things. It's about doing the right things. It's about obedience. And the third thing to say about these few verses is this, that there is a starkness in Jesus' words that is inescapable. One commentator, Michael Green, wrote this, Jesus' claims stand out sheer and stark. He does not agree that it doesn't matter what you believe in so long as you're sincere. It does not allow that we're all climbing up to God by the root of our choice. Instead, he says there are only ways to, there are only two ways to build. We either build on him and his teaching, or we build on something else. The consequence of this decision is either survival or ruin. There is a starkness that is inescapable if we simply hear Jesus um, and his words. And in, t- and in a church such as, as you are, I would imagine most of you know this little story well. And you could have um, said yourself the things that I've just offered to you. So the second question I want to ask is, okay, let's, let's go from there. Let's build from there. And let's think about the ways in which sand is being built on in the way that people are hearing and responding to the word of God in this whole area of gender identity and human sexuality. And I want to suggest to you just four ways, I could suggest more, but just four ways in which I think there is too much building on sand. Here's the first, that an awful lot of folk are saying um, scripture is kind of out of date now. We live at a different time in a different place. And because it's out of date, we can no longer take it to be as authoritative as we have been told. Here's one theologian writing, quote, The Bible originated in a pre-modern world with pre-modern perspectives on sexuality, religion, and marriage. What was understood by these three concepts in antiquity, long time ago, differs quite substantially from how they came to be understood by the modern era. That's one theologian making that pitch. Uh, a well-known writer and leader in this, of course, would be Steve Chalk. He, he wrote very interestingly this, the Bible is a conversation. Rather than ending with the finalization of the canon, that's the putting together of the Bible, rather than ending there, it continues beyond it. And of course, there's a sense in which Steve Chalk is right because the Bible is living and active Uh, And so it does converse with us. It speaks to us. uh, And we can inquire of it. But I don't think that's actually what Steve Chalk meant. He actually meant that there are new interpretations that can be brought to bring the Bible, as it were, up to date. And yet, of course, those of you who know your Church of England history and doctrine will know that actually that's not what the 39 articles say. The foundation doctrines of the Church of England say that Scripture is authoritative. 
Yes, there are bits that Jesus said no longer apply. For example, the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. We don't have to do all the stuff that they did in Old Testament times in terms of ceremony. Jesus said that very clearly. The Church of England official position says that. But when it comes to the moral law and all the rest of it, Scripture is not out of date. Interesting, C.S. Lewis wrote up about this. Some of you remember his name. And uh, he, taught, he talked about this kind of attitude as what he called chronological snobbery. Why, he asked, do we think that we know better than people who lived in the past? We might have more scientific knowledge. We might be able to do this better than that. But why do we think we know better than people in the past? So there is a real thing to look out for here that I think is about building on sand. And it's this attitude that scripture is out of date. Here's a second. That people are saying, um, we need to read scripture differently because hitherto we've been blinkered in our reading of it. Perhaps for those of us who have grown up in the church, particularly by our church culture. So let me give you just two examples. One writer looked at Genesis 1 and 2 and he said, well, we're getting confused here because what is really important in Genesis 1 and 2 is that God provides a companion for Adam. And we have got hung up on the fact that it's Eve and that she's different to him. What we ought to be doing is thinking about the fact that this is God in his love providing a companion for Adam. Or if you want another example of that, again, just back to Steve Chalk, he very cleverly, I think, said, you know what? Most people are right-handed. But that doesn't mean to say that it's wrong to be left-handed. And Genesis 1, 2, and 3 does talk about male and female and how God brought male and female together and gave them marriage... But does that mean that there has to be for everybody? Can't there be alternative arrangements for marriage in the same way that some people are left-handed, but the majority are right-handed? These are the ways in which people, um, as it were, are rereading Scripture with different cultural eyes because of our current situation and context. And again, I want to say, suggest to you that in some ways there is truth in something of what's been argued. Yes, most people are right-handed, but some people are left-handed. But I'm not sure that that is a defendable way to read the bits of Scripture that speak into these very important issues. Then thirdly, there are some folk who are um, saying that there are, if you like, bits of Scripture that are more important than others. So a former um, dean of um, St. Albans Cathedral, Geoffrey John, wrote a book called Permanent, Stable and Faithful. And he said, we're getting this business of relationships and marriages all out of kilter. What is really important about a relationship is the quality of the love inside the relationship. Uh, and you, he would say to me, you're getting hung up on the fact that, um, th- that um, you think it needs to be between a man and a woman if we're talking about a marriage or a sexually active um, relationship. Now, again, uh, there is some truth in what's been said. The quality of love does indeed matter. 
You know, if you, if you want a godly love, you can read your Bible and see how a godly love is portrayed. And there's a difference between a godly love and, if you like, a, a self-seeking something uh, in marriage. So, so that bit is right. Love matters and the quality of love matters. But the Bible is also clear that there are boundaries. So if I can be provocative for just a second, you know, what, what's to stop us having marriage between three people? To which most people would say, well, it's obvious it's between a man and a woman or it's between two people. And I'd say, well, you say it's obvious, but if we're now allowing Genesis 1 to 3 to be rewritten in terms of the biological sexes, can't we also allow it to be rewritten in terms of numbers? You know, you've got to decide, are there boundaries or are there not boundaries? And if there are, then where do the boundaries come from? Whereas someone like Jeffrey John would be saying, John, you're getting sidetracked here. What matters is the quality of the love. I don't buy that argument. I still, for the moment at least, think that that's building on sand. And then fourthly, and finally, is an illustration of what, what, what kind of arguments are out there that we need to address biblically would be this one, that um, people are suggesting that Scripture needs to be informed by the bigger agendas of life. Um, scripture doesn't give us the meaning or if you want the meta-narrative we need to bring that in from outside so um, the Bishop of Buckingham in a book called More, More Perfect Union that he wrote a couple of years ago he talked about equality being um, as it were a baseline for the Bible story from the Garden of Eden to the New Jerusalem in Revelation now again there's some truth in this because equality is a biblical concept you know, everybody stands equal before the foot of the cross. There's no front row and back row. Everybody is equal at the foot of the cross. Everybody is equally loved by God. God loves nobody less than anybody else. Equality does matter in the Bible because God is righteous and just and fair. But I don't think that's what the Bishop of Buckingham was referring to when he made those comments. I think that was... Um, an attempt to introduce uh, a narrative from today into the narrative of Scripture. Because it seems to me that the overarching narrative of Scripture is the rescuing endeavors of the God of love to his world, which has gone AWOL. That's the overarching narrative um, of the Bible. So to bring any other kind of understanding or frame of reference into the Bible it seems to me, is to build your understanding on sand. Now, I could share a number more, but just for the sake of time, I haven't, uh, we can't do that this morning. But I hope you can see what's happening here. Um, people are um, um, hearing but dismissing, hearing not building on what we see clearly in Scripture. And as a result, I think it's reasonable to say this is a building on sand. So let's turn for a second and just think about the business of building on rock. And the first thing we have to say straight away is this. What do we say when people say to us, well, it's all about interpretation at the end of the day, isn't it, John? We both read the same scriptures. You interpret them one day, one way. I interpret them a different way. And again, there's some truth in that because I can only read scripture through my eyes. I can only read scripture given the life I've lived, the culture I've been brought up in, etc., etc. You will read scripture from your experience of life. 
You will read scripture from, as it were, being a member of the family you have with the challenges and complexities and all the rest of it of your family as against the challenges, complexities of my family. So there is something in this idea that we all interpret scripture from our own viewpoint. But what I want to suggest to you is that building on rock is about recognizing that there are certain things that we're not free um, to, to get wrong, to dismiss, to ignore. Let me offer you, therefore, the following. Number one will be this, that I think there is um, an is, what I want to call an essential contribution. In other words, what the Bible says about gender and identity and sexuality actually touches so many bits of what we believe that it would be very difficult to interpret it in different ways. It's there, it's rock solid, it's joined into so much of what we believe. The obvious thing to mention is creation. So if you read Genesis 1 to 3, there's an awful lot there about this binary complementarity of male and female that it's very difficult to escape from. But it's not just there. So when we go uh, walk our way through the Old Testament, um, there is um, a moral law laid out that is later endorsed by Jesus that again builds this picture of male and female, a beautiful complementarity. It reflects somehow the image of God uh, and we're called to live in response to that in order to honor God. When we talk about the church, the, the technical or theological word is ecclesiology. When we see the church pictured in the Old Testament in the life of the prophet Hosea. Or when we read about the church in Ephesians chapter 5, it's interesting that the male-female, the husband and wife image, is the one that we see portraying the love of God for his church and how the two are meant to relate. When we talk about eschatology or the study of the things of the time to come, interesting that we read in the book of Revelation about a marriage feast. So again, you see this idea of a man and a woman coming together in marriage, and in Revelation it is. It's Jesus and his bride, the church. It touches that bit of our Bible and that bit of our understanding. In fact, you you could helicopter up from all of those individual bits of the Bible and ask a question about the Bible as a whole and say, well, how how do we perceive the Bible? Is it really revealed truth from God and by God or is it just humanity's thoughts about God because there's so much in the Bible about these issues that we as it were have to pay our money and take our choice here and if what is if we believe the Bible to be revealing to us of God's thinking and God's hopes and God's love for his world, then we're not free to dismiss it unless we want to suggest that in some way it's deficient. Our theology or our belief about the Bible is that it is the inspired word of God. It's not deficient. So there's something here about how these bits, uh, these ideas about Um, sexuality, about identity, about male and femaleness. There's something here about how they touch so many bits 
of Christian teaching and understanding. Secondly, if you want to focus in just for a moment on what Jesus specifically said, there's, there's actually more in what Jesus said than people realize. Because I hear it said, Jesus didn't say much about these things. Actually, that's not entirely true. Although, of course, to some degree it is, because in the time, Jesus didn't have to say that much because the overriding moral code was what you might call orthodox or conservative. Um, But Jesus did talk about the moral law of the Old Testament as um, having his support. He came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. He talked about marriage in Matthew 19 is between one man and one woman. Have you not heard, he said, referring people back um, to Genesis? And if you want to make a a broader observation about Jesus' teaching on ethics generally... It's true to say that Jesus raised the bar rather than lowered the bar. Whereas in other areas, he really did have a, take a shot at things. So he challenged the scribes and Pharisees over their behavior. He said, you don't need to follow the ceremonial law that we've been taught because I've now fulfilled the law. But when it came to personal ethics and issues of sexuality and holiness, Jesus raises the bar rather than does away with the Old Testament law. The third thing just to say about building on the rock is this, that it's, it's concerning, and I use that in a positive way, it's concerning how many scriptures refer to the significant consequences of taking the Bible for what it says and doing what it says or not. So do you remember Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. You're better off without it. Paul says to the Galatians, if you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, there's a seriousness with which scripture speaks about the need to pursue God's moral law. And then fourthly, and perhaps most interestingly about this business of building on the rock. Some people say to me, John, we're having this discussion because we're not clear what the Bible says about issues of gender and sexuality, etc. What's fascinating is the number of um, so-called liberal scholars. These are the people who want to see change in the church over these matters. The number of them who say, no, no, John, let's be absolutely clear. The Bible does say what it says, and it's always said what it says. The problem is the Bible's wrong. Now, these are the liberal scholars, and I love their honesty um, because they're being dead straight. They're saying, well, we just take it at face value. We know what the Bible says, and I could quote these people chapter and verse to you. But the reason why I mention them here is because their contribution is massively important. Because what they're in essence saying is, we don't have to be confused about what the Bible says. It's very clear. What we need to argue about is whether or not the words we read in the Bible are indeed rock. Are they reliable? Are they truthful? Are they God-given? Do they last across all times and all cultures? And that in a sense is the challenge of these few words in Matthew chapter 7. When Jesus says, when the rain falls and the floods come and the winds blow, the house on the rock stood firm 
because it had been built on rock. And then, of course, there's a contrast with the other house that falls. You see, what is being offered by Jesus is a life-bringing challenge. You and I know that life is complex. Life is full of challenges, none more so than over issues of gender and identity and sexuality. Some of us have faced these issues in our own personal lives, in our families. We know how difficult, we know how painful these things are. The encouragement I get from these few verses we've had read to us this morning is that actually there is something beautifully reliable about God's word. There is something that maintains and preserves life about God's word. There is something that enables us to weather the storms of life in God's words. And so though I know it's far from easy, my encouragement to you this morning is to be someone who hears what Jesus and the word of God is saying, and not just hears, but allows yourself to be shaped by it and indeed to build your life on it in order that you might stand firm when life throws everything that life can throw at you. Why don't we bow our heads for a prayer? And maybe as I lead us in a brief prayer, it may be that you want to pray in your own heart. Either something like, Heavenly Father, help me to understand more clearly what your word says about these things. Or for some of us it might be, Heavenly Father, I, I think I understand what your word does say, but I'm struggling to accept it, to believe it, to put my weight on it. Or maybe some of us are praying, Heavenly Father, I hear what your word says, but I'm thinking of X or Y and how I can help them and enable them to know your goodness, your grace, your love for them. So whatever your prayer is, just pray that in your heart while I lead us in a brief prayer. Father, thank you for the clarity with which Jesus spoke. And thank you for the invitation that he offers us to build our lives on him, his words, and your words to us. And I pray for each of us here this morning, listening online whenever, that you would grace and strengthen us to be not just hearers, but to be doers of your word also. Grant us, I pray, your indwelling and life-giving spirit that he might enliven your word to us to the honor and glory of your name. Amen.